Welcome to the Out of the Shadows podcast. In this episode, we welcome Sarah Jane Cork. Dr. Cork is Associate Professor in History at the University of New Brunswick. She is also the President of the North American Society for Intelligence History. In the episode, we talk about her book published by Routledge, U.S. Covert Operations and Cold War Strategy, Truman, Secret Warfare and the CIA for 1945 to 1953. The episodes cover the personalities involved in early covert operations, the origins of the CIA, and covert actions during the Truman and the Eisenhower administrations. I hope you enjoy the show. Uh, Sarah Jane, thank you for joining um, our podcast. It's, it's uh, very good to, to have you here. Uh, as I mentioned in my brief introduction, you are the author of a book published by Routledge, which is called U.S. Covert Operations and Cold War Strategy which really covers the first years after the Second World War of U.S. intelligence, 1945 to 1953. And by reading the book, one of the figures that emerges early on as a, a dominant figure uh, is William Donovan. Uh, could you tell us a bit more about who William Donovan was, what was his role uh, before and after the Second World War, and also something about what you call the Donovan tradition. What is the, what is the Donovan tradition in your view? Uh, Luca, thank you, first of all, for having me. Um, really enjoy your podcast and I'm uh, really grateful that you have opened it up to a discussion of my first book. Um, William Donovan is certainly one of the most interesting characters in uh, early American history of covert operations. And while we know a lot about his tenure in the OSS, um, well, first of all, as coordinator of information in 1941 and then the OSS from 1942 to 1945, we don't know a lot about what he did during the interwar years. And um, it's in that period that he really made his reputation. Uh, I know that uh, a lot of scholars are sort of focusing in on these years. There's arguments that he tried to uh, form his own intelligence agency or was perhaps working for the British, but he was generally working outside of the government, uh, running around the world in places he probably shouldn't have been, but hotspots in the world in the 20s and 30s. And so his his role in that period and his role in World War One and his role as a football star where um, people, one argument says he got the name uh, Wild Bill Donovan was on the football field. The other, of course, it says that he got it during World War II working for the OSS. But irrespective of where, that idea of Wild Bill really captures what I was trying to get at with the Donovan tradition. And I'll tell you why that was so important. So in the book, I was looking at why early American operations failed so dramatically. Um, most covert operations um, developed against the Soviet bloc, developed 1949, and went on through the remainder of the Truman administration um, and into the Eisenhower administration. These were disasters. There's no other way to think about it. These were absolutely disasters. And so when I started thinking about the project, at this point, there was very, very little um, amount of documents or literature on the operations themselves, right? 
what was available were um, policy memos, um, psychological strategy board files. And so it was almost like you were creating a puzzle of American covert operations from the outside in. So the operations are the center, and then you're trying to figure out from the outside what's going on. And the first thing I noticed was that despite arguments that there was this coherent strategy of containment that governed uh, American foreign policy during this period, that really wasn't the case. Second thing I noticed was there was also these alternate strategic visions, you can call them Titoism or rollback or liberation that were also in play during these years, right? And so, those were my first two conclusions that there was no coherent strategy during these years. And then my second conclusion was that the bureaucratic structures put in place during this period actually hampered uh, a coherent strategic message to the field. So if you have no policy, you have no strategy, you have a bureaucratic structure that pretty much allows you to do anything you want, what does that do for the covert operators? Well, it gives them a great deal of latitude, right? So they can have a great deal of latitude, but if they don't have the motivation to use that latitude, then you don't necessarily get this sort of um, phenomenon where they're, where they're doing things maybe outside the traditional bounds of American foreign policy as of yet undefined. And so that's what brought me back to trying to understand the operational culture um, of the OSS and uh, again, the strategic services unit, which was put in place um, in 1945 to sort of, and lasted to 1947, but there is evidence that might've lasted a little bit longer where the people that were hired by the OSS had some place to go when World War II shut down. And those people were secret intelligence and morale officers that were put there. And it was a way to preserve things like paramilitary capabilities. And all those operations were preserved through the men who went there. And they were all of the men who had worked for Donovan uh, in the OSS, people that he thought very highly of. And Donovan didn't think highly of soldiers who followed orders, right? He, he thought highly of young men who were willing to break the rules. And so trying to understand that organizational culture is where that term Donovan tradition came from. It was my way of, of, of saying, look, there's this group of men that were hired by Bill Donovan that spread out across Europe during World War II that were able to work with very little guidance uh, throughout World War II, do what they wanted, and then World War II ends, they come back, they still have this ideal of working outside the bounds. And then they're moved through OSS, um, SSU, and then into the CIA. And that tradition is core to how they see American covert operations. So now you can understand why American operations uh, were conducted in such a haphazard way. There is no coherent policy. There was no clear strategy. In fact, the, uh, the, uh, what American strategy was began as a, um, a discussion in 1948, and it was never resolved until after Eisenhower came into power. 
So for, from 48 to 52, you had different government organizations fighting about American Cold War strategy. So no policy, no coherent strategy, a bureaucratic structure that didn't work, and finally an operational culture that allowed these guys the flexibility they needed to conduct operations in the manner they wanted. I mean, that is very interesting. There are so many elements uh, to pick up on. I think something that, is, that you mentioned is this idea of uh, this Donovan culture having something to do with a culture of uh, aggressiveness, of being gung-ho and not respecting rules and regulations and so on. Um, and it's quite interesting for me because there is a, an extensive debate about uh, the influence of the OSS on, on the CIA throughout the Cold War. There are, for example, several uh, former OSS uh, officers, for lack of a better term, I guess, that become uh, directors and ironically have very different roles. So William Colby and, uh, and Casey during the Reagan years. So I was wondering to what extent you thought that this Donovan tradition or the influence of these men continues throughout the Cold War and influences the CIA? Well, I certainly think um, when uh, Richard Helms became uh, director of Central Intelligence, became one of the most expansive periods of covert operations under his tenure, and also um, William Casey, both who had served under Donovan. Uh, I think Colby uh, in Vietnam, I mean, certainly you can argue his role with the Phoenix program, like just um, these people pushed the envelope, right? They didn't color inside the lines. And I think they learned that working for Bill Donovan and the OSS. I mean, oftentimes your first job, especially in a period of crisis, in a period of life and death, um, when you have and heroes, right? And Bill Donovan was a hero to these men. Their own, um, I think ideas about masculinity, ideas about professionalism were tied up into how Donovan was perceived. And also perhaps a certain, I guess, disregard for oversight or checks yes. and balances, I guess. Yeah. Especially with Casey mumbling his way through Congress, I guess. Um, I think your book does an excellent job, and you mentioned the SSU. I think your book does an excellent job in like, uh, exposing the maze of organizations that we have from, uh, I guess, the, the dismembered of the OSS and the founding of the CIA. And... It would take a whole episode to go through all of those organizations and, so, and discuss them in details and so on. But I was wondering if there was one that you thought was particularly important for uh, the CIA and the Cold War or one that maybe has been largely misunderstood uh, by the literature, by scholars. I, I'll say one that I would like to see more attention on. Um, of course, that's the Office of Policy Coordination which was the unit that was formed um, in 1948 um, and functioned semi-autonomously or autonomously, that's an argument, with outside the CIA. It was, it was essentially the organization running covert operations. We don't know everything about it. And there's this huge story there. I mean, the characters that worked in that office, Frank Wiesner, et cetera, we really wanna know about that. And the other organization that we've just started to get a glimpse is the Pond, right, run by Grombach. And Mark Stout has written uh, an excellent essay on uh, Grombach in um, uh, one of his the, uh, one of the volumes of his uh, three volume collection called Spy Masters. And so um, 
those are the stories that I think we still have to get at. And as you and I were talking earlier, it saddens me when it seems to be the journalists that get these big scoops and it's not the historians, right? It, we still don't have access to the files. And as an example, um, so in my, in my book that I'm working on right now, I'm working on a book, um, it's a biography of a man by the name of John Peyton Davies. Davies was the liaison between the CIA and OPC in the development of American covert operations, particularly against China. And so I have applied, um, I have FOIA'd Davies records. And of course I get back the typical Glomar response. We neither confirm nor de deny. Um, and th these, were, these were in 1949. Right? These were 1949. And the worst of it is it's all in the public record anyways, because the US News and World Report ran a whole story on what happened with Davies. So um, we still have a long way to go. Uh, but I do think that the best way to get at these stories, and at least the best way that I found as a historian, is working from the outside in. You need, as much as people laugh and say, oh, it's a bureaucratic history. To understand American covert operations, you have to understand the bureaucracies and you have to understand the people. Because if you don't have that, you're not, that's the only way into the operational details that we need. That's, that's great. And I mean, it, it, it is something that, that I share in a sense, because I'm, I'm not a historian, I'm mostly a, an international relations scholar, but most of my research is actually I would assume the same that an historian would do in archives and, and interviews and so on. And sometimes getting ac access to either documents or, or people is very frustrating. And interviews experiences sometimes can be frustrating. Uh, let, I, I won't go into any detail about these, but let's go back to a point uh, that you made earlier. You, you and, and your book have a very... Uh, negative view of covert operation during the Truman years. You suggested that they were largely uh, a failure and you mentioned some uh, against the Soviet bloc of which we know that there was uh, quite a lot of failure there. Um, but what were the main types of operations in this in these early years? What did they try to achieve? What approach they used? Um, well, the main operation that everybody talks about is the operation against um, uh, Albania that was initiated by the British codename Operation Valuable. Um, it was begun in 1949, and then in 1951, it was handed over to the Americans, and it became uh, Project uh, BK, uh, BK, oh, my mind's going, BK Fiend, Project Fiend. Getting old. <laughs> I'm finding this is happening more and more in my classes. Project Fiend. Yeah, but there are um, so many acronyms that, that well, that, that, that's it too, but that one I should know. That one should be right there. Anyways, Project Fiend. And so initially the operation was designed to, um, uh, to use sea boats. The first uh, boat was called the Stormy Seas. They would take them by sea. They would drop them into Albania. Albania was selected largely because of its location. It was basically cut off from the Soviet Union once Tito had been kicked out of common form. So, um, it, it was sort of separate. And so they tried launching boats and then they tried airdrops of pilots. And it was just such a catastrophe. I mean, you think that these are pretty smart guys, right? I mean, um, 
these these operations were run by pe people like Michael Burke, you know, who had fairly good reputations in the organization. But you know, these guys were some of them weren't even given parachute training, right? They were dropped with a radio that probably um, was about 20 pounds. And then they were given a gun and some toilet paper and um, a, a pills so they wouldn't get um, diarrhea and then go, go overturn <laughs> the government of Ember Hawks. <laughs> and they would get to their village, right? Some of them would actually get to their village and the villagers would meet them and say, where are the Americans? Oh, they're coming, they're coming. And well, so what are you doing? Well, we're here to, <laughs> start the revolution and you'd be talking two or four guys right so just really poorly planned and I think the point I want to make about this is that I laugh about it and it's really sad it's really sad because these were men and they had families and Jose was not somebody who uh, you know would just necessarily just kill the person they caught they killed their families right so um, I just they were so poorly thought out. And even, even structurally, I mean, these people, when they were training them, they housed them in former concentration camps, right? Um, they made fun of them. They called them pixies, which is, you know, a derogatory term. They, um, they um, even going so far as dropping commandos in Yugoslavia a couple of times. So they dropped them off base in a different country. So I laugh about it, but at the same time, it, I, I'm stunned by the, by the absolute lack of planning mm -hmm. and the lives that were cost. Over 1,000 to 2,000 people died because of these early operations, not only in Albania, but also in Poland and Ukraine, in the Baltic countries. So yeah, and we still have a lot to learn about those operations. I mean, beyond these failures, I, I guess one of the successes, which is one I talked to my students about in my at CIA module would be the electoral interference in Italy in 48. Of course, of that I guess, course. I guess could be seen uh, as a, as a uh, success, certainly for, for the United States at the time and perhaps having too much of a precedent, setting too much of a precedent and convincing the CIA that this job is simple so we can do it uh, somewhere else and so on. But well, would you say it's a success in the short term? Because if you look at the way the CIA disabled the Italian government, mm -hmm. you know, from even from the 1950s right up until 1976, they were still funding parties in Italy up until 1976. And I've, I've read some interesting work where they suggest that one of the reasons why the Italian political system is so unstable is because the CIA played with funding in the 60s and 70s, creating parties here, creating parties there, mm -hmm. and never creating a stable Italian government. So yes, I think in the short term, mm -hmm. they were able to prevent the communists from taking Italy. But in the long term, I'm wondering if, um, if, if we can make that same claim. And no. I also look at... No, no, sorry. Oh, it's just, I mean, we think of Italy and France, you know, very successful operations, but then look what they did. I mean, Italy gave them a reason to start all these operations in, mm -hmm. in, in Eastern Europe, right? It was that every time we talk about the early operations, it was, hey, look what we did in Italy, you know? So it, it gave them this boost for what they could do. Yeah. So, no, I think your point about uh, elections later on is, it is absolutely uh, spot on. And I think there was a certain sense in which 
the Cold War myopia that characterized the CIA and the rest of the world also characterized the CIA. In Italy, uh, it could be easily argued that the Communist Party in 1948 might have been an instrument of the Soviet Union, although it's not really the case, or not to the extent that the United States feared but the same cannot be said of the Communist Party in the late 60s or in the 70s and so on. And yet the United States adopted the same blank approach of keeping the communists out of power and so on. But anyway, uh, I guess one of the, the questions that come, comes out of this is that generally uh, we have this uh, traditional understanding of the Truman administration being somewhat more, I guess, moderate or reluctant to engage in covert operations, maybe not in absolute terms, but when we compare it to the Eisenhower administration, for example, both in the case of Guatemala and in the case of Iran, the Truman administration seemed ready to do something, but then in the end they didn't. Whereas the Eisenhower administration comes in and it's probably the golden age, I guess, in inverted commas of the CIA in terms of aggressiveness and so on. Uh, to what extent is this picture correct? Was the Truman administration that reluctant? Was it that different from the Eisenhower one? Well, um, so I, I think that our arguments about the Truman administration have largely been mythic in terms of our understanding of what their foreign policy was. Uh, so in my, in my book, I talk about this myth of containment that has come to dominate our scholarship, not only of the Truman administration, but of course, American foreign policy over um, the course of the Cold War. And of course, that myth was started by George Kennan, uh, probably one of the smartest, um, interesting writers um, of his generation, had enormous impact on American foreign policy. His gift was to be able to give language where there was none. And that notion of containment should be understand, understood in that context. It, there, there was no policy of containment. When he uh, published his article in Foreign Affairs and that language appeared, there was no statement of, of American national policy. The X article came out actually before NSC 20 slash four, US objectives towards uh, the Soviet Union, right? So it became a, a, a language that appealed to Americans, right? It was, it was defensive, it was passive. We were not trying to do something to, um, that was aggressive. So it, it automatically fit into American perceptions of itself, right? But what it did was it put a blanket over all the debates that were going on in the administration over what America's strategy should be. And those debates, yes, there were people who, who in retrospect thought, oh, containment, because it became this public um, metaphor for American foreign policy. But at the same time, there were others, especially in the Office of Policy Coordination, some in the military, that were pushing for a much more aggressive strategy um, that would soon be named prior to the 1952 uh, election campaign as liberation and rollback. Frank Reisner was a huge advocate of rollback. Um, and so it, it wasn't until 1952 when um, American policymakers were fighting over American objectives, that the debates became clear. And what happened was majority of the State Department, and Kennan was gone by this point, leaned more towards a strategy of liberation. Majority of the intelligence community and military leaned more towards liberation and rollback. But those were private communications between the administration. 
Now, at the same time, what's happening in the Eisenhower administration, uh, Eisenhower um, uh, run up to the 1952 election. Now, one of the problems with the 1948 election was that Eisenhower, no, sorry, not Eisenhower, Dewey did not distinguish uh, a major difference between the Democrats and the Republicans. And some people believe that's why he failed to win the election in 1948. Eisenhower and John Foster Dulles, who's one of his advisors and will go on to be Secretary of State, figure out they need to find a way to differentiate their, their foreign policy from that of the Truman administration. And grasping on the idea that containment is passive and reactive. They were the ones to use that language. They have a passive reactive strategy. We have an aggressive strategy of liberation. And believe it or not, it was 74% of the American people thought that was the better strategy, liberation or rollback, right? When they did public opinion polls, but only 5% of those people thought that they would vote Democrat. So they were really good at crafting their domestic political message, finding a way to separate their administration's goals from those of the Truman administration. But the irony, and this, is, and this is what I try to bring out in the book, is that Truman's policy had the same, and I call it the same conflicted core, because there were visions of liberation and rollback and containment and Titoism all bound up in the strategic knot, right? And so Truman himself knew this, and he was very upset by Eisenhower's continued onslaught about this passive reactive strategy of containment. He tried to have Eisenhower come to the White House. He invited him a couple times so he could explain to him, look, we are trying to do these operations. We are, we are actually going into Albania. We are running liberation operations and rollback operations. And Eisenhower refused him twice. And the two men had once had a really good friendship and that broke it. Truman never forgave Eisenhower uh, for uh, taking that tactic. But um, it, the disagreement over American strategy in this period was so public that um, New York Times journalist, Anthony Lavaro actually named it the War of the Potomac. So it, it, it was this huge conflict over what we're gonna do about Russia. That's quite interesting because actually one could argue that during the Eisenhower years, then any operation against uh, Russia largely uh, succeeded or declined compared to Truman and the whole rivalry switches to uh, other countries outside Latin of America. Europe. Yes, yeah. in the Middle East. Yeah, you're absolutely right. If you actually look at the number, because it was becoming very, very, very clear by 1954, 55, that th these operations were not working. Right, uh, they were, and they were. Everybody who participated were being rounded up by the communists. And so, when Eisenhower put in place the Solarium exercise, right in 1953, was designed to deal with this. You know, what are our strategies? One, or do we have containment? Is liberation? Uh, which is, and so by the end of 1954, they have a pretty good idea that rollback and liberation in towards the Soviet Empire is not going to work. And they, and then you see that shift to Latin America and to um, the Middle East. And also perhaps not taking the only opportunity to actually roll back with Hungary. Yes, in, in, in 56. 56. I guess complicit the Suez crisis as well. Um, yeah. 
we're coming towards the end of the podcast, so perhaps just a, a couple of last questions. Uh, you mentioned George Kennan and the fact that, in a sense, he is uh, a misunderstood figure. Is, is It was more a matter of language than having a clear strategy. And in your book, there are some sort of big uh, Cold War characters that come up, and these are, of course, their early years, but some of them have a, have a very long career uh, in U.S. national security. Who would you think is the one that stands out the most? Uh, in your book, or someone who is misunderstood? Well, um, not that he had a long career, but my next book is on uh, John Peyton Davies. And Davies, as I suggested, uh, worked as a liaison between the State Department and the CIA for a very brief period of time. He lost his job, I think, because of what happened during those years. But he had, was also a China hand. Uh, he worked in China during World War II under General Stilwell. Uh, so he faced a backlash for his foreign policies over China. Then he moved to the State Department. Well, then he moved to Moscow, um, and he worked with Kennan. They became very close friends. Um, both men saw themselves as realists, so they approached American policy in the same way. And um, when Kennan moved to the policy planning staff, Davies came in as his number two. Now, one of the things about George Kennan is that um, Kennan in some ways didn't like to delegate, but he also didn't like to give firm guidance either. And so he told Davies that he wanted, you know, something done in China to, um, you know, counter, this is in 1949, counter the communist revolution. And we need to think along these ways. And so Davies at that point went to the CIA to try to come up with a operation on, on that. And that story, while, um, very important in the 1950s and came out publicly, um, I'm still trying to get the documents to. But what's so interesting about Davies uh, is that after he lost his job, and he did, he was fired by John Foster Dulles. He was the last of the China hands to be fired in 1954 by John Foster Dulles. He went to Lima, Peru and opened a furniture factory and made award-winning furniture. Um, but this next book's not just about Davies, because when I actually started to go through the archives and I came across the letters between he and his wife, I realized that this is not his story. This is their story. They didn't understand what happened to them as, as separate stories. It happened to both of them. This was, they called it their troubles. And so in this biography, it's not only a biography of John Peyton Davies, it's a, a biography of John Peyton and his wife, uh, Patricia Grady Davies. Uh, so it's, it's a little bit off from my work on covert operations. It's a different type of book, but it stems from my first book, the Davies, stories I, the Davies story I found in my first book. And so I've just moved away from this, the covert operations story will be a chapter, mm -hmm. but there's a bigger story, I think, here. I mean, this is a, a very interesting uh, project, and I think it, it connects with the point you made earlier about the fact that you have to understand the people um, yes. and what they do to understand uh, bureaucracies and so on. Uh, you mentioned your project, and I think I, I'd conclude the episode by saying that you're also the president and one of the founders of the North American Society for uh, Intelligence History. Uh, which people can uh, see on our website or follow on Twitter. 
can you tell us a bit more about the society, what it does, and how people can uh, join or take part in events? Yeah, the North American Society for Intelligence History was started um, in 2017 by myself and Mark Stout. Um, we had a lot of really great people on the board. Um, Catherine Olmsted, Hugh Wilford, John Ferris um, uh, were our first board. Uh, and within two years, we had put on our first conference at the International Spy Museum. Uh, it went absolutely um, we, we were so happy with how it went. I mean, basically, we were two people trying to put together a conference with very little money. And we were just so happy for how it went. We're working right now actually on a, a book on the exhibits in the museum coming out of that conference. And um, so we have that book, but we, in, in the face of COVID, we had planned a conference in Toronto in 2020. Um, and unfortunately we had to cancel that conference. And then we, so we had all these people that had papers and no one had anywhere to present them. And so we came up with this idea of a brown bag where people could present their works. They could present finished books, they could present papers, um, unpublished, unpublished or published, or just things they were trying to work through. And so that has gone really well. We are actually booked up well into 2022. Nage also has a, a, a spy fiction book club called Silent Game, which is a lot of fun. Um, if uh, For me, reading spy fiction is what I do in my downtime. Uh, I certainly enjoy it. We have about 20 members um, and we read a book a month. And um, it's a great group of people. And what's so interesting about that, that is it's not only historians and, and intelligence scholars, but it's also practitioners. And so you get a really interesting conversation in that forum. So I would encourage anybody who's, you know, reads spy fiction, please let us know and join the book club. It's fascinating. And we have just set up a new Soviet history group uh, through Nash. Uh, in this group, it's, it's for those who work on Soviet history, uh, Soviet intelligence history, and you must read Russian. So all of this is on our website. So if you just Google N-A-S-I-H org, uh, we'll come up. And if you have any questions about the organization, do not hesitate to email me. My email is s-j.corke. We put out a newsletter every year. Um, our newsletter is reviewed by uh, three of our editorial board. Uh, so if you have a small piece, uh, approximately you know, 500 to 1,000 words, something you're working on, please do not hesitate to uh, contact us because we'd love to hear from you. And this applies for younger scholars as well. If you're in your first year of your PhD looking for your first uh, publication, don't, don't hesitate to send us something. That's fantastic. Uh, Sarah Jane, thank you for being with us uh, on this episode and I'll make it available online uh, as soon as possible. Luca, I really appreciate the opportunity. It's nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Thank you. Okay, take care.